0: Hi, I'm Esau Konga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ringer Podcast Network.
1: If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available, and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C., and president in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com.
2: There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that.
0: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are now less than 48 hours away from opening day in Major League Baseball. I cannot wait for the Red Sox to get their season underway. I'm fired up for that, so we'll do some socks. We're going to catch up with Nora Princiati from The Ringer in just a little bit, talk about this Patriots situation. She's at the owners' meetings in Arizona. And remember, at the owners' meetings is where Robert Kraft revealed that he texted or he got a text from Meek Mill that said that Lamar Jackson wants to be On the Patriots. So we'll chat to Nora about that. And if the Patriots should go after Lamar. You know how I feel about this. They should be all in. So we'll get Nora's take on that. And I thought that Robert had some really interesting comments regarding Bill Belichick and his future with the organization. So we'll get into those comments as well. But this is a rare night here. We're recording late on Tuesday night after both the Bruins and the Celtics lost. The Bruins lost way more understandable. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But the Celtics thing is just... Really, you can't explain it. What the hell happened to this team in Washington tonight? Okay, this is their worst loss of the season, 130 to 111 to the Wizards. And you can look at it you say, oh, Brian, they got killed by OKC and all that. Yeah, they've had really bad losses. And I'll go through a couple of them in a second here. But everything was on the line for this team. I don't understand it, right? I mean, the one seed is on the line. You have a golden opportunity to get the one seed. And they're just a complete no-show in Washington. And I really thought, and now I feel like an idiot for this because... I tweeted out on Tuesday morning that I thought Utah was the wake-up call for this team. They had one three in a row, and I get it. The teams were not good. Sacramento's good, but they have no defense. But Indiana, San Antonio, those are bad teams with the exception of the Kings. But the Celtics dominated in all those games. You look at it during that three-game stretch, a 127.5 offensive rating third, a 96.4 defensive rating. And the reason I point this out, it's very important for what happened tonight. That was first during that stretch. They outscored teams by north of 31 points per 100 possessions, and in that three-game stretch, 389 to 297 plus 92. So I thought this was going to happen again in the game against Washington. Just keep your foot on the gas and keep going and get ready for that game against the Milwaukee Bucks coming up on Thursday night, but play with the same intensity that you played with in Sacramento that you played with against Indiana and against the San Antonio Spurs. Bring that intensity, and where was that team? It was just a complete no-show. Malcolm Brogdon, after the game the other night, this is what he says, after they beat the San Antonio Spurs, I think we're getting more locked in. I think when Milwaukee took the number one seed from us after the break, it was sort of a shock to us that we had dropped because we had created some separation between us and them, and that's something we want. We want the number one seed. I think this team understands the importance of having home court advantage in the playoffs, so that's something we're going after. We want the one seed. We're more locked in now. How the fuck do you explain what happened against the Washington Wizards? I mean, the, this you had a guy on the team just say, we want the one seed. We're locked in more. We're ready to go. We want to get that one seed. It shook us a little bit when Milwaukee took over, but we're ready to go with the one seed. And this is how you show up. And now you fall, what, two and a half games behind the Bucks, Even if you win on Thursday in Milwaukee, Do you really have a chance now to get the one seed? Like, it's just a really, really lost opportunity for the Celtics by losing this Washington game. You win in Washington, you beat Milwaukee, you're feeling really good about your chances about getting the one seed. Not anymore, just based on the math of the rest of the season here. This was a golden opportunity. Remember this, the Wizards didn't have Kyle Kuzma or Bradley Beal in this game. They're two leading scorers, and the Celtics still lost the game. And I go through it like... All these horrible losses they've had, right? The Rockets a couple weeks back, the worst team in the NBA, they're in the Wembenyana sweepstakes. The no-show against OKC, remember that game when it was 150 to 117? The 28-point blown lead against the Nets. They lost three times to the Orlando Magic. Grant missed the free throws at the end of the Cavaliers game, which was embarrassing because he's telling Donovan Mitchell that he's going to hit them both. In fact, he hit neither one of his free throws. And Jalen missing free throws at the end of the game against the Knicks, where Julius Randle is mocking him. So you had all these bad losses, and you still had a chance going into the final stretch of the season, or the final seven games or so, to catch Milwaukee with a showdown coming up on Thursday night against Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks. And you no-show against a Washington team that completely blows, okay? And after this, now it's just six games remaining. It's just, I, I don't know how you explain how a team no shows like this. It's a character flaw from my perspective. I don't know how it happens. You're playing for something. They've had a lot of no shows throughout the season. This should not have been one. Like, we can talk about trap games and all this, and hey, it's the third game in four nights. There should be no excuse for this game. First of all, you had yesterday off. You were playing in Washington, it's a bad team. You know you have everything to play for. I don't know how you explain not showing up for this game. It's just embarrassing. And the biggest concern to me in this one is the defense. It's just, there's no effort. That's why I say this is a character flaw because you did not show up on the defensive side of the floor at all, right? The Celtics in March, prior to this Wizards game, 108.5 defensive rating. That was first in the league. (laughs) They looked at times like the defense we saw last year. I'm not saying all the time, but in spurts, we saw them turn it on. They couldn't do that at all tonight. And tonight, what it... What it reminded me of is that OKC loss that I referenced where there was just straight easy line drives to the basket, right? That OKC game, the Thunder scored 70 points in the paint. Just easy opportunities right by guys just driving to the basket. First half tonight for the Wizards, they had 36 points in the paint. The Grizzlies, by the way, they lead the league at 58.5. The Wizards were on pace for 72 at halftime. They finished with 62. So still better than the best team in the NBA in terms of points in the paint. And the Wizards aren't a team that score a lot in the paint. They're 16th in the NBA, just over 50. And tonight they go for 62, 36 coming in the first half. That's character. That's defensive effort. The Celtics didn't bring it whatsoever in this game against Washington. Washington on the night had a 130.6 offensive rating. (laughs) I mean, I should say they had a 130.6 offensive rating in the first half. They finished at 127.5. Okay, the best offense in the NBA, the Kings, who we saw the Celtics, played pretty well against what, a week and a half ago or a week ago now. They lead the league at 118.9. Again, this Wizards team with no Bradley Beal and no Kyle Kuzma, their two leading scorers had a 127.5 offensive rating against a team that one of their players just said they're locked in and they want the one seed, right? I mean, that's just embarrassing. And this team, by the way, just to put it into perspective, Washington Without Kuzma and Bradley Beal on the court this season, they had a 111.72 offensive rating. Okay, 111.72. Teams that are worse than that in terms of their rating this year offensively, the Rockets, the Pistons, the Spurs and the Hornets, without those two players, that's the neighborhood this Washington team lives in. And tonight they put up a 127.5 offensive rating against a team that was apparently going for the one seed. They lit the Celtics ass up. And I just, I don't understand where the pride went defensively with this team tonight. Denny Advia, 14 points in the paint, averages 4.6 points per game in the paint during the season. I mean, the guy, the guy is not known for his ball handling. He's not known for his finishing at the cup. Monte Morris, eight points in the paint. He averages 3.6 per game. These are not guys that want to get to the basket and get downhill. And they did that against the Celtics. They combined for 22 points in the paint. They average 8.2. So a 13.8 point difference from where they're at. So these guys are not good against other teams in the NBA getting into the paint. That's not what they do. That's not how they operate. And the Celtics allowed them to do that. These guys aren't looking to attack the cup. Like I can live with Porzingis having a big night going for the 32. Although at times I thought the Celtics defensive game plan on him was horrendous. And I'll get into that in a second when I get to the coach here. But Advia goes for 25 and Morris goes for 19. So 44 between those two players. They average 19.2 points per game in terms of both of them during the season. So they're up almost 25 points from their season average combined. And look, naturally, they're going to get more shots because Kuzma and Bradley Beal aren't in the lineup. But those two players, Denny Advia and Monty Morris, should not be combining for 44 points against a Celtics team that is supposed to have pride on that side of the floor. It's just a lack of effort where they were getting lit up. And it wasn't even even like... Monty Morris shot the ball great. He was one of six from three-point territory, and he still finishes with 19 points because this little small diminutive point guard is getting to the basket at will because there's no pressure on him defensively whatsoever. It's just a lack of effort. I don't get it. I don't know how you don't bring the necessary effort defensively in a game like tonight. This is not a trap game. This is you're trying to get the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. It's just, quite frankly, to me, it was embarrassing, and I thought the coach was bad again. You think about this, first of all. And look, this is an argument that we could certainly, you could argue to the contrary because they were not playing particularly well and they made a run, did the Celtics bench guys, right? The Pritchards of the world, Grant was out there with that group, Cornette, et cetera. Those guys actually made a run, Hauser, et cetera. So I give them credit for making that run, but they called off the dogs with nine minutes left. And I kind of thought that sent the wrong message where it's like, hey guys, you know, it's over head to the bench, we'll get him on Thursday night. And even after the game, Missoula said that they were just off tonight. That wasn't off. That was an effort game. I would have made them play through that. Like, this is unacceptable. Start playing hard. Try to finish this game playing hard because that, to me, was just, that's embarrassing. There was a lack of leadership out there from the core group, and that's just unacceptable from my perspective. But if I just point to one thing with Joe Missoula tonight, who do you think is the best rim protector on the Celtics? Who do you think is the best shot blocker on the Celtics? Who do you think is the biggest impact player on the Celtics from a defensive perspective? I'll let that sit for a second and I'll answer my own question. It's Robert Williams. (laughs) It's not even close. He's the biggest impact guy that you have on your team. If you just look at everything he can do from a defensive perspective, and I know I gave you the numbers on Derek White and what an impact he has, but if you're talking about a flat out disruptor, a guy that can protect the paint, a guy that can block shots and a guy that can make up for some of the mistakes like these straight line drives to the basket. Who's the guy you want on the court? Robert Williams, I still contend if he didn't go down last year, he would have won the defensive player of the year. He had a bigger impact on that side of the floor than Marcus Smart. So somebody's got to explain this to me. And I know they're being careful with him. He's coming back from an injury and all that. The Celtics were getting the shit kicked out of them in the third quarter. How many, I reference it multiple times. How many times are you going to see layups at the basket? How many times are you going to see easy drives to the basket? When did Robert Williams check into the game in the third quarter? 138 left. The game was over. They put him in the game when it was already over. What were they doing? What were they waiting for with Robert Williams? Robert Williams can go out there and at least he can muck it up defensively. And look, he made mistakes too, but at least he gave the necessary effort on that side of the court. I don't understand it. What were they waiting for? And you just look at some of the numbers with Robert Williams this year. And it goes to what the Wizards were doing tonight. First of all, 108.1 defensive rating with them on the floor, 97th percentile. Okay, on short mid-rangers, opponent shoot, 40.7% from the field with Robert Williams on the court. And by the way, that's down 3.6% when he's on the court compared to when he's off the court. That's in the 81st percentile. So he has a real impact there. Pre-garbage time. Okay, pre-garbage time. So before he came in with 138 left, 24 points on mid-rangers, 32% of their shots on short mid-rangers. That's the area where you cannot get shots off when Robert Williams is there because he's going to come off his guy and he's going to block your shot or at least he's going to change your shot and for some reason he's not on the court. Then you look at long mid-rangers, okay? 40.1% on the season. Team shoot when Robert Williams is on the court. 70th percentile, minus 7.2%. That's in the 90th percentile in terms of where that number's at when he's on the court compared to off the court. Pre-garbage time. The Wizards in this game shot 75% on long mid-rangers. Teams shoot 40.1% when he is on the court. When he's off the court, that number goes up to 47.2%. Tonight, we saw it at 75%. So the two areas of the floor where those are inefficient shots to begin with, but when Robert Williams is on the court, you aren't getting good shots even with your inefficient shots, and they don't bring him in the game. I, I I can't comprehend if you're having all these issues defensively Why don't you go to your best defensive player? It doesn't make sense to me, especially considering everything that's on the line for the Celtics team at this particular point in time. And then I looked even early in this game, Rob blocked a three on Kendrick Dunn, and he looked active. And you go back to his numbers last year, 11.1 contested shots per game. That was eighth in the league. 3.7 contested threes per game. That was 16th in the NBA, and it was second among centers behind only Anthony Davis. Rob brings energy. Rob brings an impact. Why didn't you go to that guy? In the most important series of the season last year against the Golden State Warriors, with Rob on the court, the Celtics outscored the Golden State Warriors by 30 points. With Rob off the court, they were outscored by 54. That's a plus 84 differential. You have that weapon on your bench. Now, you shouldn't need it against the Washington Wizards, but don't you think they needed a boost? They needed energy defensively tonight. Why did they take so long to put Rob in? And quite frankly, I thought that they should have gone to the two-big lineup really early in that third quarter because it was pretty clear what the Wizards were doing. They were running their offense through Porzingis. So what was happening is either Porzingis was getting a switch on him, so he was getting a smaller defender, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, etc., and he could just easily back them in or shoot over them. Or the other thing the Celtics were doing is they were doubling Porzingis, and Porzingis was kicking it out. He was making really easy reads to wide-open shooters. So if that's the case, who should be on the court? The double bigs. Get Robert Williams on the court. Like, this is not something that is overly complicated. It seemed awfully simplistic to me. Where's Rob? It's noticeable. Put him in the game. And this does not dismiss the poor effort in terms of the on-ball defense from a lot of the guys on the perimeter. But you do have a guy that can erase a lot of the mistakes. The team wasn't bringing the necessary energy. So the guy that plays, in my opinion, with the most energy on the team, especially on the defensive side of the floor, why don't you put him in the fucking game? That's what I can't comprehend, and that's what I cannot understand, and that's what I can't live with from the coach tonight. Uh, Most of this is on the players, but that I cannot live with from the coach. You waited until the game was over to put your best defender on the floor in the third, third quarter? Unacceptable, especially with the way the game was going. The other thing I'd mention is this. Do you realize this lineup for the Celtics? Al Robert Williams... Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Derek White. Entering Tuesday, they've played 69 minutes together via cleaning the glass with those guys on the court, 123.8 offensive rating, 78th percentile, 78.7 defensive rating, 100th percentile, plus 45.1 net rating, 100th percentile. They're outscoring teams by 45 points per 100 possessions with this group on the court together. Why don't you go to that group? I know that you're loyal to Marcus Smart and all that, but this is a group that literally you cannot score on these guys. And look, I'm not saying any of these guys played great defensively tonight, but that group is basically the best defensive five-man unit in the NBA. Why didn't you go to that group in the third quarter? That's like an easy thing to go to and say, hey, it makes a lot of sense. Let's put our best five-man unit from a defense perspective on the court when we can't stop the bleeding. Or at least just get Rob in there. Even if you want to keep smart in there, at least get Rob in there. I just, I can't get away from this whole thing with Joe Mazzulla, where he didn't play Rob Williams. And I thought Jalen late in this game in the fourth quarter, not even late in this game, but when the Celtics are trying to make a comeback here, Jalen back-to-back turnovers, that reminded me a little bit of the postseason. As great as Jalen has been during the stretch, and I told you he's going to win all NBA and all that, this is just, that was an ugly start to the fourth for Jalen back-to-back turnovers. All right. So I did want to get to something else Celtics related. So because we have been talking about Jalen's future with the organization since the recent comments to The Times and, of course, the great article that we talked about last week in The Ringer from Logan Murdoch. And to be abundantly clear, I think we're trending despite what I just said about Jalen playing poorly tonight, especially in terms of his ball handling. We're heading towards Jalen getting one of those forward spots on the All-NBA team and getting a Supermax contract, at least – For the near future, I think eventually we're going to be able to breathe easy because I do think the Celtics are going to have that at their disposal to offer Jalen this offseason. But with that being said, I was thinking about how unique this Celtics team is in terms of if they actually were able to win a championship. And I was wondering, like, have we seen a blueprint that is similar to this in recent NBA history where the team drafts their two main pieces and those two main pieces are two homegrown players that lead you to a championship. Like how often do we see this happen in the NBA where your two best players are homegrown guys? And I look through it. So I went back the past 15 years because I believe that's when we saw a shift in the NBA. Remember, the Celtics won a title in 08. They make the trade for Ray Allen. And then Kevin Garnett comes over in that blockbuster deal. And remember, KG was not sold on coming to Boston prior to this, but he eventually saw Ray and Pierce and said, okay, I get a chance to win a championship here. They formed the new big three, their first year together. They win 66 games. They win an NBA title. So naturally, players and teams saw this as sort of a blueprint, superstars teaming up. So what happened is it wasn't just trades after this, but it was guys partnering up in free agency. So how rare is it to see a team win a title where their best two players are homegrown guys? Let's go through these last 15 NBA champions that I referenced. 08, Garnett and Pierce. So one of your two best players is homegrown. 2009, Kobe and Gasol. One of your two best players is homegrown. 2010, Kobe and Gasol again. One of your two best players is homegrown. 2011, Dirk was the best player. Jason Terry, Jason Kidd, Marion Chandler. One of the best two homegrown. Now, of course, at one point, Jason Kidd was a Maverick, then he was all over the place, but you get the point. Dirk was the guy. 2012, LeBron and Wade, one of your two best players is homegrown. 2013, LeBron and Wade, same thing. 2014 is an exception to the rules. Duncan, Parker, Manu, Kawhi eventually is the MVP of the finals, but Duncan and Parker, your two best players homegrown. That's the exception to the rule. 2015, Stephen Clay, another exception to the rule. Your two best players are homegrown. But then you go to 2016, Kyrie and LeBron. Now, LeBron was drafted by the Cavs, but he went to Miami and he came back, right? So that's LeBron returning to play with Kyrie. 2017, it's Curry and Durant. So one of your two best players is homegrown. Even the Warriors, who were like the team that had just broken the record for the most regular season wins in the NBA, had won a championship In 2015, they even went to a guy like Kevin Durant. Same thing in 18, one of your two best players homegrown. 19, basically none of your players are homegrown with the exception of Siakam, but Lowry, your best player prior to bringing in Kawhi. So none of your two best players, or neither one of your best two players, I should say, were homegrown. 2020, same thing, LeBron and AD, neither one of those guys were homegrown. 2021, you have Giannis. Middleton was in a trade years ago with Jennings. Holiday came over in a trade that offseason, so... You had one of your two best players homegrown, and then 2022, you had Curry, and you can make an argument for Wiggins in that playoff run. He was so good. He was definitely the second best player for them against the Celtics because of the job that he did on Tatum, but you could say Clay. so okay, that's another exception to the rule. So basically, in order to win a championship in the last 15 years, the norm was not building around two homegrown stars. At most, and I'm giving the Clay one in the second year in 2022, or the second championship without Durant, I should say, for that group. So at most, it's three out of the last 15 championships. So 80% of the time over the last 15 years, teams had to go outside their organization to get at least one of their best two players. And remember, those other three champions are with Tim Duncan, inarguably a top 10 player of all time, and Tim Duncan of this generation, Steph Curry, right? The greatest teammate and the greatest shooter of all time. So it took all-time greats, and maybe more importantly, all-time great leaders and teammates. Everyone loves those guys to win those championships where you didn't have to go outside the organization. Even with Steph, we saw them do it in 17 and 18. But think about that. Egoless with Steph Curry to be able to say, hey, I want Kevin Durant to come here, right? Considering he had just won back-to-back MVPs. He had already won a championship and he knew that there was a possibility that Durant could be considered the better player than him. And he still said, yeah, let's bring him in because I'm all about winning. So it's very rare. So the Celtics right now, this team, With Tatum and Jalen as their two best players, they're trying to do what the Spurs did with Duncan and the Warriors did with Curry, which has not been the norm in this new NBA landscape, so to speak. And we saw so many teams try and do what the Celtics have done, building around their stars, and it hasn't really manifested in a championship with the exception of those teams we reference. Clay and Steph, Duncan, and at that particular point in time, Parker, Kawhi, Manu, whoever you want to say is the second best player. But even think about those OKC teams when they had Durant, Russ, and then they had Harden. They traded away Harden. That team had one finals appearance. They never won a championship. Minnesota was trying to rebuild for years. I mean, Karl-Anthony Towns, Wiggins, that group never worked together. Even before then, they were drafting the Brewers and the loves of the world in the lottery. That didn't work out. Memphis drafted Conley and Mayo early in in the lottery. The Clippers, Eric Gordon and Blake Griffin early in the lottery. Remember, the Bulls tried to build everything around Derrick Rose and Noah and that group. Now, they dealt with injuries, but they never did it. Washington with Wall and Beal and Otto Porter, they had top three picks in back-to-back-to-back years. They never won anything, right? They didn't even get out of the second round. You think about Philly, the ultimate failure, right? The process with Embiid, Simmons, and Fultz. They never won anything. Charlotte, (laughs) they drafted Michael Kidd-Gilchrist second, and they were building around Kemba Walker. So... I'm just saying that the Celtics, I'm not saying they cannot win a title. I'm just saying it's a very unique path in the modern NBA, this path that the Celtics are trying to make to win a championship. So those three teams that made it work with two homegrown stars, they needed another element as well. The perfect coach, right? Popovich with Duncan, you could argue the greatest coach of all time, although, of course, Red and Phil Jackson would have something to say about that. But you could make an argument for Popovich. Nobody would say, hey, you're a fucking idiot if you say Greg Popovich is the greatest coach in the history of the NBA. And with the Warriors, they needed the coach and Steve Kerr to unlock everything. Because remember, when Mark Jackson was the coach of the Warriors, they were like posting up Klay Thompson. <laughs> that was They were doing that like a lot, right? And they sort of unlocked a beautiful game with Steve Kerr. The ball was flying around and they unlocked Draymond, where Draymond became basically the best defender of his generation because he could switch on everything. He's a great rim protector. And it enabled them to unlock that death lineup at the end of games where they could play small because Draymond could guard up. So it felt like the Celtics did almost have the perfect coach in Ime, where Ime clearly last season got through to these guys and they made that great run in the second half of the season. And you could tell just recently, by the way, that Jalen Brown was talking to Logan Murdoch in his article on the ringer about Eme, These guys loved Emei and they believed in Emei. And Jalen even referenced the fact that he brought an edge. So maybe they had that perfect guy, but obviously that cannot be the case. That cannot be the scenario going forward. But if you look at it right in terms of recent history, Garnett chose the Celtics be- eventually because of the Pearson race situation. LeBron chose Wade. Durant chose Curry. LeBron then chose Kyrie going back to Cleveland. So six out of the last 15 titles, you had somebody, a star choosing to join another star even in the case of pierce or i should say even in the case of garnett it's a trade to pair up with pierce the other ones we see it with free agency then you have good trades that made their superstars happy right kobe got Kasol. lowry got the superstar in Kawhi, and i'm not putting lowry in the same stratosphere as some of these other guys but i'm saying lowry got a star in Kawhi. Giannis, who had middleton they got drew holiday right Dirk got Jason Kidd and whoever else you want to mention in that group, the Jason Terrys, et cetera. LeBron got Anthony Davis after he was already there, and we all know the connection there with Rich Paul, et cetera. So that's another six out of the 15. So 12 out of the last 15 NBA champions, the superstars chose to play together, or the team made a trade to please the superstar. So they went outside the organization to get the best player or the second best player. So this is just very, very rare. You're trying to do what. Two top 10 guys of all time, in the case of Duncan and Curry, have done. We're talking about all-time greats. That's what the Celtics are trying to do right now. This is sort of the unique area code they're living in. And Tatum, right now, (laughs) he would not be considered to be in the same stratosphere as Tim Duncan or, of course, Steph Curry. Now, look, this team with Rob Healthy, and if the coach pushes the right buttons, I truly believe they can win a championship. Now, I'm very discouraged at the result we saw in this game against Washington. I still have no idea what was going on in this game and the lack of effort, as I alluded to earlier, but I still believe they have a chance. I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying the path is very, very unique for the Celtics to have an opportunity to win a championship. This would be very unconventional in the modern day NBA. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it would be outside of what we ordinarily see over the last 15 years, The other unique element is not having a current or a former MVP. So this goes back decades. But let's just say this new NBA that I alluded to over the past 15 years. You look at the past champions. 08 Celtics, they had an MVP. Garnett had won one. 09 Lakers had Kobe. He had won one, of course. 2010 Lakers, they had Kobe. He had won one. 2011 Mavericks, Dirk had won an MVP. The Heat in 2012, LeBron. The Heat in 2013, LeBron. 14, the Spurs, they had Duncan, who had won an MVP. 15, the Warriors, Curry won MVP that year. 16, the Cavaliers, they had LeBron. 17, the Warriors had two, Curry and Durant. 18, the Warriors had two, Curry and Durant. The 19 Raptors, no MVP, but they did have a finals MVP in Kawhi Leonard, but no regular season MVP, although Kawhi had a real convincing argument for 2017. But he didn't win it nonetheless. It went to Russell Westbrook. 20, the Lakers had LeBron, of course. The 21 Bucks had Giannis. And the 2022 Warriors had Steph Curry. All right. So of the last 15 champions, just one did not have a former MVP. And that team had Kawhi Leonard, who finished, as I alluded to, third in the MVP in 17. And he was without question, as long as he was healthy, he was a top five player in the game. So 93.3% of the last 15 champions had an MVP. The exception to the rule was Kawhi. So to make this Celtics thing even more unique, they're trying to be the first team in this new NBA the last 15 years, ever since the Garnett trade when everything sort of shifted. They're trying to be the first team to win a championship in which they do not have an MVP and their two best players have been homegrown. And actually, that formula has not happened in a long time. How long? About three decades is the last time we saw a team win an NBA champion championship when their two best players were homegrown and neither one of them had been an MVP before. So just look back through the history of the league. When is the last time this has happened? We've had a team win a championship with its two best players being homegrown and neither being an MVP, but we haven't had a team win a championship where their two best players are homegrown and neither one has won an MVP. So, 99 Spurs, of course, Robinson was an MVP when Duncan won his first. The Rockets, when they won, Hakeem had been an MVP. Yeah, Jordan, of course, Shaq with Kobe. Shaq had won MVPs. The 04 Pistons, they didn't have an MVP, but Billups, Hamilton, Rashid. None of those guys were homegrown products in terms of their best players. And I guess you could throw Ben Wallace in the mix, but their two best players were not homegrown guys. Okay, so you would have to go all the way back to the bad boy Pistons who won back to back titles in 88-89 in terms of a team that its best two players were homegrown when we're talking about Isaiah Thomas and we're talking about Joe Dumars and neither one of those players winning an MVP. So the Celts, in terms of their team construction, the two best players homegrown, no MVP awards on that team. It has not been done since the 88, 89 bad boy Pistons. It's just insane to think about that. And I believe this would be so good for the league to see this happen. Now, selfishly for us, it it would be awesome, right? We want to see them win a championship. But man, it would just be so rewarding, right? Because Tatum and Brown have done it together. They've built up scars. They've built up calluses together. The loss in the bubble, the loss in the finals last year. It would be awesome to see them sort of overcome this. And even a team like the Celtics, they tried to do it. They tried to go out and get Kyrie Irving and get Gordon Hayward. And of course, that situation blew up in the Celtics' face. But my only point with this, I'm just looking at where this team is right now, how they're currently constructed, and just seeing how unique of a championship this would be. And like I said, I'm not saying they can't do it, although this loss to the Wizards makes me feel really underwhelmed with the way that the Celtics, of course, performed in that game. And they've had so many bad losses. And I do worry about the coach in a big moment, going from may to Joe Missoula, I worry about some of the stuff with Jalen Brown, but I just thought it was worth the exercise to look at the situation in terms of what the Celtics are trying to do and look at the other contenders, right? And Bede got Harden. Now, I think the Celtics would beat the Sixers at a series, right? You look at the Bucs, we already went through their situation. You look at some of the teams, of course, across the league, and you say, okay, the Suns, who when they get to ramp back, and he's apparently coming back this week, that's the favorite in the Western Conference from my perspective. If you look at the Clippers, if they get Paul George back, those guys all teamed up, right? So it's just very rare we see this in the modern day NBA ever since Garnett went to join up with Pierce and the Celtics are trying to do something that we really haven't seen done in recent NBA history. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Nora Princiati from The Ringer. She's at the owners meetings in Arizona. Can the Patriots really get Lamar? I really hope so. We'll chat with Nora next. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from the NFL owners' meetings in Arizona here on the Ringer NFL show, it's Nora Princiati. Nora, thanks so much for taking some time from the owners' meetings. We really appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. Live from Scottsdale, Arizona.
0: Yeah, so I had a feeling that this offseason, when you got to the owners' meetings, there would be a conversation about Robert Kraft and his text with Meek Mill. Did you feel like that was one of the obvious storylines when you were getting ready to go to Arizona?
2: (laughs) You know, I just missed that one. I didn't have it on my list, but uh, this trip is full of surprises, as are the Patriots.
0: Yeah, it's been bizarre. I mean, going back to the whole Lamar Jackson situation at the beginning when John Harbaugh sits down and then we find out, hey, Lamar actually asked for a trade. He puts it out there on social media. But just from a Patriots perspective here, Robert actually said that it'd be Bill Belichick's decision as it pertains to if they're going to go after... Lamar Jackson or not. And it just seems like to me right now, Robert Kraft is, again, sort of appeasing to the fan base where he's saying, hey, guys, I got a text from my friend Meek Mill. Lamar Jackson is interested in playing for the Patriots. So, hey, if Bill really wants to pursue this, he has my permission. He can go ahead and do it. It feels like he's putting everything on Bill.
2: Yeah. Blame Bill if we don't get the 2019 MVP of the league. It's not on me. Meek said we should do it.
0: It's pretty crazy. Yeah, Meek Meek says we're in, or Meek says Lamar's in, which means you should be in if you're Bill Belichick. But in all seriousness, this reads to me like, Kraft, we've seen this again with, with Kraft as he's catering to the fan base and sort of throwing it out there. He did this a couple of years ago with free agency, talking about the money that they spent. But it does really seem like Bill and Robert are in sort of a weird spot here where Robert thinks it's okay to just put this out there, that the team has a chance to go after there and get Lamar Jackson. And naturally now Bill is going to be blamed, it, even if it isn't really a real possibility. Bill's going to be blamed now if the Patriots don't get Lamar Jackson.
2: Don't you think they should do it, though? Yes, 100 like, like, percent. So the Lamar thing in general, I I simultaneously feel like I have a sense of why he's sort of languishing out there, which is just that when a player goes outside the norm and and operates in a way that is not how the league likes to do things, it kind of doesn't matter how good that player is. They will crack down and it feels like that's what's happening. And so in some sense, it's not that shocking that he hasn't gotten traction in in finding a potential trading partner and finding someone where he could leave Baltimore and, and why the Ravens feel like they, have most of the leverage still. At the same time, there is something that I feel like I can't say enough, which is just that there is a guy who was a unanimous MVP like four years ago, three years ago, and he's just available. He's just like there. He wants to leave his team, couple first round picks, figure out the money. He's just there. This is the hardest problem to solve in the entire sport. And there's just a guy who can answer that question available. There are like 15 teams that if what they wanted to do truly above everything else was just win, that is what they would be doing. So in some, in that sense, of course the Patriots should go do it because half the league should go do it, but like they should do that. They should go get Lamar Jackson. The owner wants to be in the playoffs so badly. You're in this stacked AFC. I think if, if, Truly, if they were in the NFC, I think you can win a lot of games with Mac Jones and a a good supporting cast. You can't you. you. Sorry, not in that conference, not with Burrow, not with Herbert, not with Mahomes, not with Josh, like not with Aaron Rodgers, not with that list of quarterbacks. You're just not going to be an impactful playoff team. And if that's the bar, you need someone like Lamar Jackson to make that happen. So. Robert Kraft sort of laying that at the feet of of Bill Belichick, and I'm not saying that it was necessarily that serious. I think he's just just talking about Meek Mill and and saying stuff, but I'm sure he knew it would make a splash. Like, the pressure's kind of on. Yeah. Because they'd be a really good team.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering, too, like, did Robert send Bill a screenshot of the exchange with Meek Mill? Is that how Bill found out? Did he know before the (laughs) owners meeting that this is on the table? Like, I'm trying to figure out how this all came together. But I'm completely with you on trading for Lamar because and look, at the beginning of the offseason, I didn't know that this was going to be a possibility, especially for the Patriots in particular. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, you got to do everything you can to help Mac. And that meant, okay, Bill O'Brien, that's a nice hire. Can you go get a number one receiver? They still haven't done that. I mean, they went out and got Juju, but it's not a number one receiver. So they still don't have a number one weapon. And one of the things we look at in terms of recent NFL history is these quarterbacks that are on rookie contracts making deep runs, like even Jared Goff with the Rams. And we saw last year, Jalen Hurts with the Eagles. But the problem is those rosters, the Rams roster when they went and the Eagles roster when they went, those rosters were stacked. The Patriots roster is not very good right now. It is easily the fourth-best roster in their own division. And as you alluded to with some of the quarterbacks, just in your own division, Rodgers is coming. Josh Allen is already here. Tua played really well when he was on the field, and that team has loaded up, bringing in Jalen Ramsey to help out defensively. We know what they have with the weapons. And so when I look at it, Mac Jones is the type of quarterback that he's going to need a lot of help for this to work to begin with. And Lamar Jackson's a guy that can come in and you can build your entire offense around his unique ability to run and cause defenses, all kinds of issues. And think about like what you'd be giving up draft picks, right? I mean, you go through the Patriots recent first round picks. They're not good. We're talking <laughs> right, they're about burning
2: them every year anyway,
0: yeah, I, you're right. Cole Strange. I mean, maybe he turns out to be good, but he's a guard. And Mac was a first round pick. I mean, you go back to Isaiah Wynn, Sony Michelle, Nikhil Harry. none of those guys are on the team anymore. And those are recent draft picks going back to twenty eighteen. so I really can't come up with an argument not to do it. Like the Patriots would get back into contention. And I guess it is sort of going back to the whole idea of Robert putting it out there that they could be in on Lamar Jackson or that at least that opportunity could present itself is the owner wants his team to be relevant again. This team is not going to be relevant next season with Mac Jones as the quarterback. So I I can't really come up with an argument not to do it. I I don't care about the draft picks considering where the draft picks have gone in recent years with this
1: team.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the receiver thing. They don't have an awesome supporting cast. At the same time, they have better receivers probably than what Lamar's had in Baltimore on average when you factor in all the injuries that they've dealt with. And we've seen how good of an offense he can support just with the talent that he has as a dual threat guy. Like if they really want to compete and it seems like Kraft is, you know, talking about really wanting to be in the playoffs and and really wanting to stay on that trajectory, you kind of have to go for it because of where the division is, because I I think the alternative is, is to just start pivoting towards a, an actual rebuild and to actually be bad, not eight wins. And we're sort of upset about it, but to be a bad football team. And I don't think that anyone there is interested in doing that. But the problem is if the jets are going to go get Rogers, If the Dolphins, you know, there's there's some question marks around Tua, but the Dolphins roster is just incredibly stacked. And at times that Mike McDaniel offense was the most exciting thing in football. And then you've got the Bills. If that is your division, you can't like you just can't half ass your way to to even being a playoff team like they have to be a really good team to make the playoffs because of the conference they're in because of the division that they're in. So many things have to break right to do that with Mac Jones and a kind of iffy supporting cast. Far fewer things have to break right if you have Lamar Jackson. So I'm not saying it's a lot of money. The draft picks still count. I can understand a certain amount of trepidation about his injury history, the style of play. Some of those questions I think are not fair in the extent to which they seem to be limiting his his suitors, his options, but fair to bring up if you're talking about making a, you know, 200 plus million dollar commitment and parting with the draft picks, but if that's your goal is to be a team that can compete with the teams that they have to compete with, like that that's your guy cuz otherwise you got to try to draft one or like that guy's not going <laughs> to They just don't grow on trees. That opportunity just comes so rarely. He's 26 years old. I mean, good God.
0: Yeah. And I don't think as an organization, Robert or Bill, especially Bill, have the stomach to say, hey, let's pivot this season and completely tank. I mean, you go back to the 2020 year, they won seven games with Cam Newton, not to say that that's like a big achievement if anything you could argue that it hurt the organization because look they end up with mac with the 15th overall pick but there was no reason in 2020 after tom brady left for the patriots to win seven games it actually probably would have helped them if they lost more games and got a better draft pick and reset i know bill has said on multiple occasions they reset everything that was sort of the idea there but i'm looking at it now like i'm just sort of like trying to imagine what this offense like i'm getting excited of the possibility of what it could look like with lamar like one of the things I looked at the other day is you just look at the running backs that have played with Lamar and how much better they've been. And Ramondre last year, he was at yes. 3.81 yards after contact per attempt, which was first in the NFL. And that's because he had a bad scheme. They had an inept passing game. And of course, they had a really, really bad play caller. And there was really no other threats besides Ramondre Stevenson. And then you start to look at like some of these guys that play with Lamar. Ingram, who was old, Mark Ingram at 19 was at 5.0 yards per carry. Dobbins, who's like an elite level talent, he was at 5.8 first in the NFL playing with Lamar Jackson. And then I start to think about, okay, we heard about, we know Bill O'Brien used the RPO game when he was in Houston with Deshaun Watson. And of course, he did that at the collegiate level with Bryce Young. And you start to look at, you look at it with Lamar, like you go back to now last year, of course, his season cut short. But even last year, 332 rushing yards out of RPOs first, and he played in 12 games. He was fifth in passing. You go back to 19, 671 rushing yards out of RPOs. Murray was second at 244, so a 427-yard difference. So I just look at that. This this is sort of like the button that you could press to sort of erase all the problems that you've had in recent history with this team in terms of the roster construction. It seems like it's the cheat code to get back, and I believe if you brought in Bill O'Brien, Obviously they're familiar with him, but they obviously think he's a really good offensive mind as well. I think you look at what the Ravens were able to do with Lamar Jackson, the Patriots as an organization should think that they can design even a better offense for Lamar.
2: The floor is like the floor is like a top ten offense. It's gotta ah. be. I mean, he was yeah. not working with that much in Baltimore. And again, they they had such terrible injury luck and and you know, I think that Greg Roman scheme left a lot to be desired because in a weird way, it's sort of like, you have Lamar Jackson, your running game is going to be fine. And that was all that they put all the work into. And and so much of that just was too revolving around those aspects when that's always going to be there when that's your quarterback. I don't think that would happen with Bill O'Brien, that combination, like the floor feels like a top 10 offense. And then for all the warts that have showed over the last three seasons, Bill can coach defense. They're going to be fine defensively. They can find players on defense. They don't have quite as many, you know, the swings and the misses are not quite so, so plentiful. They'd be really good. Like that's a recipe. I, I, and I just don't know. And in some ways it's not fair, right? Because like you look at a team like Minnesota with Kirk cousins and sort of think, okay, well that's a team that can, can compete in a certain mold. Why can't the Patriots do this with Mac Jones? and? you just can't in the AFC. I just, stuff can change obviously, but right now in the near, in the, you know, in the future that we can see, you're just not going to win a lot of games in that conference doing that. And you're not going to make an impact in the playoffs doing that.
0: Yeah, and I think like one of the knocks on Lamar has been, and it's sort of been unfair, is, hey, well, can he bring you back when it's like an obvious passing situation, right? Well, here's the other question. Can Mac Jones? Like, we haven't seen Mac Jones do it. Lamar's numbers when he's trailing have been good. He's 29 touchdowns, six picks, a 105 rating. His numbers are really good. When Mac is trailing in games, 21 TDs, 19 picks, and an 82.9 rating. I'm not saying that's the be-all, end-all, but I just feel like the upside with Mac, like, it's just not there, and- We saw last year, Nora, one of the issues here with this team was that they soured on Mac. Like that's that happened. Like they were upset with how he handled himself, A, on the field, but B, off the field as well in terms of some of the issues that were going on all the way back to training camp in some of the practices. So if anything, the way that last year went for Mac, I think that should even play into the decision more considering Obviously, it's the head coach that had some of the issues with the quarterback. And even when Bill was talking yesterday at the owners meetings in in Arizona, where you are right now, he basically was asked about a quarterback competition. And he said, like, everybody gets to compete. He didn't just, like, come out and say, Max, our guy. And you would think and I know it's Bill, like he kind of talks that way. But you would think after everything that sort of happened last year, going back to the Monday night disaster against Chicago where he's on the field, they pull him off the field. I mean, Devin McCourty spoke about it recently, how that was something that some of the players were upset about as well. They thought it was unfair to Mac. You would think after all that, if he really was committed to Mac, he would just come out and say, hey, Mac's our guy going forward and all that. But it does really feel like there, <laughs> there is a scenario next year if Lamar's not the quarterback, which I mean, I know that's like a long shot right now, where at some point next year, Zappy actually takes over for Mac Jones. So if anything, the whole situation with Max should make it more likely or motivate you more to go after Lamar.
2: I think part of it, too, is like, because I think there's this temptation to <laughs> to blame Matt Patricia for everything, which I definitely am am sometimes tempted to fall into that school of thought. And I think there's a lot of validity there. But part of it is also the way that what year is it? It's. Last year was 2022. The way that 2021 ended for him. I mean, he got, uh, Matt got off to such a hot start, but what was it? The last six games or so? Like the tail end of that looked like decline and that happens with young quarterbacks, tons, right? Like defenses get a little bit of a better sense of how they play and how to attack them. And it would be far from the first time that that had happened to a young guy in that situation, but then he comes and has the next season that doesn't go so well. And I, I do think that I would be looking at that if I were in that building. It would be sort of lingering in, in my mind, like it didn't just coincide with, oh, hey, let's let's get Matt Patricia in here and see how this goes with the quarterback. Like he he did have that dip at the end of the year prior that really, really carried over into last season. So I think those concerns are fair, even though I still don't feel like Mac was one of the top three issues with their offense last year. Um, It's just a different, in some ways those are different questions, right? Like whose fault was it that it, it got so bad in 2022 versus what should you do? If you're going to try to be a consistent playoff threat in the AFC, like I'm much more sympathetic to Mac Jones. If we're talking about the first version of that, if we're talking about the second question, I, You would need such a good supporting cast, and they don't have that. And it's actually easier to, in one fell swoop, go get Lamar Jackson than to totally remake your roster into something where it's like a 49ers style. Well, everyone else is good, so we're going to elevate you.
0: Yeah, and you brought up Kirk Cousins earlier, and it just made me think of it from this perspective is like, okay, well, what is the upside with Mac, right? Is the upside to be like maybe Kirk Cousins like a couple years down the road like You think about it, even Chicago with Justin Fields, they look at it, they say, all right, we already have like an elite running quarterback and he can do he can do things with his legs that sort of elevated his floor last season. And okay, if we get some weapons around him and maybe we can get him to be like 80 to 85 percent of the passer that Josh Allen is, Okay, we're cooking with gasoline. But with Mac, he doesn't really have any of those sort of traits that make you think, okay, he could take a huge step forward, even if he's a lot better next year. It's not going to look like a top five talent or a top 10 talent ever in the NFL, especially considering how deep that position is right now. So I think even that's another argument to go after Lamar. But I did want to get your take on sort of some of the comments Rob had about, or excuse me, Robert Kraft had about Bill. And so (laughs) Rob, I don't know if anybody's called
2: him.
0: Well, maybe Meek calls him that. So if Meek calls him that, I guess it's okay. So one of the interesting ones, he was asked about Bill breaking Don Shula's record and he said, I'd like or not break Don Shula's record, but how long he's going to be here. And he put Shula's record in here. He said, I'd like him to break Don Shula's record, but I'm not looking for any of our players to get great stats. We're about winning and doing whatever we can. That's our focus right now. And it's very important to me that we make the playoffs. And that's what I hope happens next year. They made a real effort. And you look at it in terms of getting Gerard Mayo to stay here, right? You have... Some other guys on the staff, like the Bill O'Brien's of the world as well, who has also been a head coach in the NFL. And that, to me, I'd really like to make the playoffs. And talking about the the record with Don Shula, I mean, is Bill like, and I know this this like a couple years ago would have sounded like a hut take on the radio or something along those lines, right? Like you're just throwing stuff out there. But is Bill like actually, like based on the way Robert is talking, is he like legitimately not, I don't want to say on the hut seat, but is there a guarantee that he's the coach in 2024?
2: I would be really shocked. I, mean, I first of all, I don't know. Like I, I, I was struck by that comment too, and I don't really know what it means and how to accurately sort of read between the lines and, and get the meaning there. But I was definitely my ears perked up at that one. Gut feeling, sort of at educated guess. It feels unfathomable that Kraft would actually go through with it, uh, barring something extreme like you know they win two games things get really really bad I do think that Bill is a difficult personality and I I I think that's a way of communicating hey buddy things haven't been so great around here recently <laughs> I want you to know that I know and I don't like it like if, <laughs> that seems totally plausible to me I just think that Kraft is so attached to the glory years and is also such a a a people person a peacemaker uh, let's stay together he, like he has that personality and I think doing those things I think that's really important to him I just don't I it's just so hard for me to envision him saying Bill Belichick you're fired I, I just I find that Very, very unlikely, but I do think that that's a way of communicating. Hey, Bill, you're getting kind of a negative performance review.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. That make that makes total sense. And the one other thing I'd say, as it pertains to Robert, which I think could be interesting, is let's say they pull off the deal that I want them to pull off, and the deal that you've endorsed is getting Lamar Jackson. Can you imagine the victory lap that Kraft's gonna take if they land him? Like he is gonna be so fired up for this
2: so fired up. I mean, also like Meek's going to be in the mix, you know, he would be there. He'd be going to the games. He'd be in the suite, like the whole thing. It would be, but it would be really exciting. And like, I think again, these guys lived the Brady dynasty, all of those years, that was kind of normal. And I think he misses it. I think he misses it being more exciting. I think he misses more stuff being on the line and like the vibes that come with that and all of the celebrity attention and all of that stuff. Like Lamar Jackson is a way to get that back. And I doubt that's lost on anyone, right? Like for, for better or in someone like Bill Belichick's estimation, I can see him actually being hesitant about courting something like that, where it's sort of like, there's, there's a a fair amount of hoopla that, Comes with this guy, but that's just because he's really good. But I think Kraft would really enjoy that, especially if it were coupled with winning and and being a force in the in the postseason,
0: yeah. and Tom loves the guy, too. So that's another reason to go after him because we know how <laughs> upset Robert is that of course, Tom ended up leaving the organization, which Robert, like, takes no blame for that whatsoever. but that's another conversation. But, OK, let's go with the assumption that they don't get Lamar, which, I mean, I don't want to live in that world. I'm, I'm now all in in the Lamar situation. But in the offseason, they get Juju, Jacoby's out. They bring in Gusecki. Thankfully, Johnu Smith is no longer part of the equation. Gusecki, of course, he's got to contribute more than Johnu, even though he's not really a tight end. But nonetheless, that, those are sort of the upgrades they make, which, I mean, they're upgrades, I guess, in some sense. I mean, you could argue the Jacoby one, but nonetheless, they're not huge upgrades do you see them now like getting into the trade market for a number 1 or do you think they're comfortable going into the season with the group of weapons that they have on the roster right now?
2: I think they shouldn't be, I think they should try to get uh, they should be looking for a wide receiver one, um either through the trade market or look, they don't have the best history, but the funny thing is that I look around the league this free agency And we've seen a lot of kind of modest deals in general. It has not been the splashiest thing. And I think part of that and also part of why, you know, Odell's still out there. Um, We haven't seen any sort of Hopkins trade materialize, like why some of this stuff has been a little sleepy and slow. But I just do think there is this incredibly pervasive idea around the league right now that you can get high quality receivers who are going to contribute in year one, year two through the draft. The funny thing is if the Patriots might be one of the exceptions to that because it <laughs> hasn't always gone so well, but in general, and this is a league that tends to have a lot of groupthink, that is something that I think is really driving a lot of decision-making um, in terms of how teams are paying receivers, trading for receivers, thinking about their receiver rooms. And I wouldn't be surprised even, you know, given the Nikhil Harry incidents and and things that we've lived through if they still do see the draft as a really, really viable place to significantly upgrade what they have there.
0: Yeah, and then with the tight end situation, who do you think was the best replacement for Gronk? Dalton Keene, Devin Asiasi, (laughs) Jonu Smith, Hunter Henry, or now Mike Gusecki. Like, who's the Uh, best? Oh who's God. the best guy? And they put they sh- a ton of money into that position. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> you spend all that money and you get, no- you get, like, no production. Hunter Henry had one good season. Since that, like, they've had nothing else from these guys. It's om- it's remarkable.
2: You should be playing the, like, Oscars in memoriam music under the list of those guys. Yeah, I mean, I actually kind of think the Gusecki thing is interesting because since he can't block, maybe they'll stop trying to put, like, a, a square peg in a round hole and just let him be, like, a really really giant slot receiver and somehow that'll work out um if, i mean it's hunter henry right like that's sort of the only only true yeah. answer
0: he's solid i mean he's a solid yeah, player but fine. it's it, but but you've also spent what this is a nine million dollar for gusecki i think it is so it's a one-year deal johnny was the 50 million i mean that did not work and like What was he, he
2: got, he, he earned, how much money did he earn per catch? Somebody did the math on that and it was really funny. It was just out of control.
0: Oh yeah. It's got to be ridiculous. And if you just look at it.
2: like $40,000 a snap or something, I don't I'm. I do not have this in front of me, so don't quote me. And, and you know what's
0: you know what's amazing about him is like the first four games of 2021, like they heavily involved him, like they were targeting him like crazy. Yeah. I think he had like 21, 21 targets, I believe, in the first four games, and then the rest of the season it was like 25. It's like Josh was just like, yeah, Bill, um, this guy, Janu, th- this situation is not going to work out. So yeah, it's been the tight end situation after having like the best guy in the league for a decade. It's been. Pretty unfortunate for the Patriots recently. So that 14th overall pick, most likely, I'll come to you. They trade down, they trade up, or they trade it for an established NFL player.
2: I think they'll or
0: stay put. I guess that's wh- that's yeah. an option as well.
2: I, I mean, I think probably the likeliest is they stay put and make the pick, right? Like it's it's an interesting. The draft show guys have been talking about this a lot, which I think is sort of funny. It's it's such a class of outliers. Like, there are so many. The problem with the receiver group is they are small. A lot of small receivers in this class, and I don't think that that's what they need. I mean, they could do, like, super fast, but uh, there are there's a guy for every, like... Here's your lineman whose arms are way too short, but his production's insane. Obviously, the Bryce Young thing is is sort of the headline one, but there are so many players in this class who feel like they are in some way, shape, or form a height, weight, speed, whatever, outlier of some conventional thing that teams want that you get to see a lot of like where certain organizations are willing to bend the rules a little bit and go out on a limb. And the Patriots like always do that shit, right? Like they have their, they actually stick to their, their requirements pretty well, but they just have different ones than a lot of teams. So that's why you get the cool strangers of the world and, and stuff like that. So this seems like a very good draft for them to just do something really weird again, um, which I doubt new England fans love the idea of, Um, but I think they, I think they make the pick. I don't think, I mean, it depends, right? Like if, if, if there's a, the ability to do a, to swing a Hopkins deal or or something like that, then maybe that pick, I mean, I, I don't think in that situation, that's that what, that's what would happen, but maybe there's some big trade that you need that pick to come into play for and fine if it's the right player and a proven veteran and that makes sense to me at the same time, just speaking more generally you want, they're not in the, they're not in win now mode. Like they're just not, they're not in, we're a super bowl contender and we're trying to add someone who we know can contribute significantly from day one and can help us win a super bowl. If that's the way that they're thinking, I think they're a little, delusional. And I also don't think that that is how they're thinking. It's certainly not how they've operated through this free agency so far. So I bet they sit and, and you know, take a blue chipper, make the pick, get someone in there. Yeah, it's probably it feels... going to be something people get upset about.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah, it'll probably be another guard. But I mean, I really wouldn't be surprised if they like one of the corners, whether it be Witherspoon or Joey Porter Jr., somebody along those totally. lines, because that's that's certainly another need that this team has, is they they desperately need a number one corner. We found out Jonathan Jones, obviously, wasn't—now, they did survive. I give them credit. They survived last year in terms of the cornerback position. Like, I thought after JC Jackson left, like, they could be in trouble, but they were okay when it comes to that. All right, that is Nora Princiati here on the Ringer NFL Show. She joined us live from the owners' meetings in Arizona. Nora, thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for uh, stepping away from Meek Mill for a couple minutes. Thank you.
2: Absolutely. Talk to you when there's a a Lamar trade to get into.
0: Sounds good. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff from Nora Princiati on the owners' meetings, Lamar Jackson. That was a lot of fun. Time now to bring in Jamie McClellan, who is, of course, the producer of Off the Pike. You can email us at offthepike at gmail.com. You can also Leave us a voicemail at 617-396-7172. We'll get to the emails, though, tonight. But, Jamie, before we get to those, man, I mean, you heard you heard Nora. She's all in on Lamar. I'm all in on Lamar. Are you all in on Lamar? Dude, I am all... I don't know anyone
1: that's not all in on Lamar. It's a bad spin, honestly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, based on some of the replies I get on Twitter, I feel like a lot of people aren't. But I, I don't know. I, like this is This is the band-aid to all your problems. Just go make it happen. So I hope they do it. So... Who do we got first up in the off the pike at gmail.com
1: mailbox? Ironically, we have someone who's not all in Omar. I didn't I wasn't truthful. Whoa. The title of this email is Meek Mill should tell Lamar to stay away. This is from Scott in New Hampshire. Scott writes, hi, Brian. What are your thoughts on Lamar reportedly wanting to play in New England? Obviously, his talent is undeniable. He was the unanimous MVP, etc." But his peak was back in 2019, and his major stats have dropped every year since, uh, most notably games played. You can definitely argue that the Ravens didn't surround him with enough talent, but how easily will the Pats be able to do that after signing him to such a big contract and forfeiting two first-round picks? We all know Bill's track record with drafting wide receivers. Obviously, Lamar is better than Mac. Mack has a low ceiling. But Mac is a lot cheaper, and Bill should at least watch him play with a competent system around him before blowing things up. Thoughts?
0: I just don't understand the loyalty to Mac. Like, why do the Patriots have to be loyal to Mac? Now, if Mac's your quarterback, I've said it on multiple occasions, you got to do everything to try to help him out. And I think they've done some of that, bringing in Bill O'Brien, and they've tried to upgrade the weapons, but the weapon group, as I was chatting with, with Nora, it still isn't nearly good enough. Lamar Jackson is sort of the guy that can get you out from these problems. Like your roster is not good enough right now to compete at a high level. Even if you got another receiver in here, I still don't think you're good enough, especially in this division that is completely stacked right now. And the upside is so high with Lamar basically. And we went through this the other day, Jamie, you're basically guaranteed to have the best or second best rushing offense in the NFL. He makes all the running backs that play with him better. And when you look at Lamar, like, the group of weapons he was working with in Baltimore doesn't exactly jump off the page, right? Like, you could make an argument. Yeah, I mean, look, Mark Andrews is a good player at the tight end position, but if you look at the wide receiver group, the Patriots actually have a better wide receiver group than what he played with in Baltimore. The guy that they took in the first round a couple of years ago, Hollywood Brown's not even on the team anymore, and if it wasn't for Nikhil Harry, you could argue that he was the worst pick in that round because that guy was not good for the Baltimore Ravens, so... I just look at it from the perspective you immediately have an elite running game and like there isn't this whole thing where, okay, well, Mac Jones is if the game's on the line and you have to throw the ball, we've seen him. He's not good. Like when you're in obvious passing situations with Mac Jones, you're not good. And Lamar's actually been good in obvious passing situations. I went through some of those numbers earlier with Nora in terms of when they're trailing. They're really good. I just feel like the upside is so much higher with Lamar. And I do feel like what's the point with if you're just going to roll this thing back with Mac, what's the ceiling? Maybe, 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 best case scenario, you make it in as a wildcard team. Yeah, let's think about this, Jamie. Two against Miami. You always lose to Miami at least once. And now Miami is a way better team than you. And the one you won last year was with what? Teddy Bridgewater and Skylar Thompson, whatever the hell that guy's name was. Remember that? Because Tua was hurt. The Jets now... You easily could have lost to them. You needed yeah. a walk off return, and you and needed Zach like Wilson. the wor- yeah the worst Zach Wilson game of all time. And then the Buffalo Bills—they own the Patriots right now. The last time the Patriots beat them was a windstorm where Mac Jones threw the ball three times. I mean, come on—that's that's not like a real game that the Patriots won. So and remember the playoff game. I mean, that was embarrassing. So you're not—I just don't see how they're making the playoffs. Like, what is the point of this whole thing with Mac? And if you can look at it and say we can get a major upgrade at the quarterback position and not have to think about it, I would do that in a second.
1: Totally. And it's also, if you throw away next year, which obviously isn't a foregoing conclusion, you're already three years into Max' rookie deal. He has one more year, and then he's already going to cost $25 million with his fifth year option. And it's like, well, well then where are we at? We're still going to have to pay someone.
0: That's the best part. They've already blew the whole thing. Like, oh, yeah. having, a quarterback a a, yeah, having a quarterback on a rookie contract is the best ever. You know when they fucked that up? They fucked that up when they said, hey, Matt, Patricia, you run the damn <laughs> offense. OK, and yeah. the team was a complete disaster last year. The offense was a complete disaster. So it's me. I just erase the whole thing and say, hey, this guy, uh, an MVP. And, he, you know, he's barely older than Matt. He's 26, right? Yeah. And Mac's entering his 25 year old season. This guy's like a year and a half older than Mac. So like a we? Sp- Do we think there's this big ceiling for Mac Jones? Like he's never going to play at the same level that Lamar has already. So why don't you go get Lamar? I agree. Oh, I, I am interested to see how this whole thing shakes up because that, that whole scene was bizarre this week where he has the tweet that he asked for the trade and then John Harbaugh speaking to the media. And then I then mean, that was
1: hilarious. Yeah. I wonder if things will shake out after the draft or something. People just don't want to par with their, their good picks this year or something.
0: Yeah, that could be part of it where a team's saying, like, say, Indy, who could be in on Lamar. Okay. They're saying, OK, let's wait until after the draft so we don't have to give up the fourth pick. Like, we can make the fourth pick and then we can get Lamar. Maybe that's what teams yeah. are thinking. I, I guess you could make that same argument for the Patriots, right? Because they're at 14.
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe
0: they would say, hey, we want to keep 14, get a blue chip player, whether it be a corner like we have chatted about multiple times. That that's definitely a need for this team and then they can say we can go get Lamar or maybe they'd be crazy and they'd use that 14th pick and they'd go get a receiver like a number one option and then they'd bring in Mac I mean that that would be that would be a nice option as well can I interest you in Jerry Judy and Lamar Jackson next year that I mean that would be nice all right who's up next Jamie
1: we have this from Dave Taylor Dave writes Be squared good coverage on Jalen Brown um, I think the Celtics seriously need to consider trading JB at the end of the season if they want to avoid getting pennies on the dollar at the end of JB's contract next year. It's not going to like your segment earlier, Brian. JB has oh, given yeah. every indication that he will jump ship in free agency. His New York Times interview revealing the following: his characterization of part of the Celtics fan base is toxic. His stated distrust of Brad Stevens with respect to their KD trade rumors. He's clearly getting tired of being the second fiddle to JT and for the subtle racism, bias and discrimination he states he has faced in Boston. That does not sound like a guy who is coming back. Trade him at the end of the year. Don't go down the Kyrie Irving, Gordon Haywood route and get virtually nothing in return for their departure. Hmm.
0: Okay, so I do think there is some truth to what he's saying there, not like that the Jalen stuff. I'm talking about like his opinion on trading Jalen. And the only way that I could do that is if Jalen doesn't make all NBA. Because if Jalen makes all NBA, that's $290 million, a Supermax contract that the Celtics have the luxury of offering him. And as I've outlined before, he's played almost 60% of his time at four this year. And that number is only going up now that you have Robert Williams back in the fold and you've been playing more too big stuff, although I wish they went to more too big tonight in the third quarter. But nonetheless, we've already talked about that. But my overwhelming point with this is just the fact that if you cannot offer Jalen the Supermax, if he does not qualify for it by making an all NBA team, you may be in that position if you're the Celtics. Now, you could always say, hey, let's run it back. Let's see if he gets all NBA this year. But then you're also flirting with the fact that we know the guard line is stacked. And even if Jalen is a forward again, like he is this year, which in all likelihood he will be. Well, Kevin Durant's going to be back in the fold next year, and Kawhi Leonard is definitely going to play enough, or we think Kawhi Leonard's going to play enough games, right? Paul George will not have missed as many games as he misses this year if that situation plays itself out. And even LeBron, we'll see, although he's been dealing with all these injuries, the forward group could be more stacked, right? Zion Williamson, who isn't healthy this year, of course, he could be back and he's made an all NBA team. So if that is the case, you're still flirting with the fact that you may not be able to give him the Supermax contract. So, if he doesn't get it this year and he's entering the final year of his deal, we went through all the possibilities last week with Brian Robb. If uh, you hadn't heard that, go back and listen to it because the possibilities are not great of trading Jalen Brown. But you may be in that position where he could just leave for. A, now, you could always work on a sign and trade, et cetera, but you're never going to get anything back like of significance when it. Comes to that, but you may be in that position. Like, I, I believe the Celtics will be in serious, is, uh, have a serious issue with Jalen if he doesn't make an all NBA team because I can't see him passing on the Supermax 290 if he qualifies. Because think about it, I can't remember oh. one guy that's passed on the Supermax. Guys have passed on deals with their team, but I can't remember anybody passing on the Supermax in the NBA. I mean, heck, Bradley Beal has a Supermax <laughs> right now. I mean, think about that. So, Jalen Brown, and at this point, based on the issues that Jalen has had with the organization as it pertains to the trade rumors and all that different type of stuff, and him getting on the call with Tatum and Brad, as Logan outlined in his article, you kind of have to give it to him. You don't really have a choice. He's not negotiating with you. He's not saying, yeah, I'll take less than... No, he's not going to take less than the Supermax. You're going to have to give him the Supermax. So my hope from a Celtics perspective, and as a guy that really appreciates what Jalen brings to this team, and I really thought that he was so impactful to the postseason. Like, everybody referenced the turnovers. He had so many big shots for this team. I just don't want to lose the player. So I just hope that they're able to keep Jalen Brown long-term. But I will say, in the specific scenario of him not making the Supermax, I would be worried from a Celtics fan perspective. I don't know why I said from a Celtics fan perspective. I am a Celtics fan, so I'll be worried.
1: No, that would definitely make things easier. I think the only thing I'd say is... They just need to do their due diligence, just talk to them. Like we have to divine the tea leaves in these articles, but they can just be like, what's up, Jalen? Do you want to stay or not? It just, yeah. the thing it reminds me of is, is the whole Mookie Bet situation. You know, he's coming up on his last year and all the, the news was, oh, he doesn't want to be here. He's gone. So we have to trade him. And obviously that didn't work out very well. And just, I just feel like they need to do everything in their power to avoid that, if possible, you know? Well, and from a Red Sox perspective, too,
0: they basically stopped negotiating at that $300 million mark. Now, maybe Mookie was going to go to free agency no matter what. But if you're the Red Sox, it would it would have looked better. From a PR. Yeah, it, well, it would have looked better from a PR. Well, that's fair, too. You could just offer more money. But from a PR perspective, it probably would have worked out better for them to just let him walk them and try to get him back in free agency than what they ended up getting with the trade. But, yeah, that was a complete PR disaster. and unfortunate i mean this guy was an absolute star in this town he's not here i'm, I'm trying to get excited for opening day baseball thanks for making me think of mookie bets jamie thanks a lot
1: yeah connor wong made the team yeah <laughs> getting a return on investment right there we'll see all right who's up next all right we got one last question this is from Oliver in Boston, Oliver writes, Hey, Brian, with spring training almost over, I'm getting excited for the Red Sox. But one thing I feel is missing from this most recent Red Sox era is a real nemesis. From Kobe and LeBron to Peyton Manning to A-Rod, Boston has always been blessed with maybe the best cast of sports villains of any city. My question for you is, why doesn't Aaron Judge feel like he's in this category? He's got the imposing look, just had one of the best offensive seasons ever, in typical Yankee fashion, will wear pinstripes his entire career, unlike Mookie and unlike Xander. Is he too nice? He doesn't whine and complain enough? Maybe one of the Red Sox needs to pull a Vertech and take a swing at him. Uh, thanks, Brian, and love the pod.
0: Okay, so a couple of things to that. I feel like Aaron Judge was definitely trending in that direction. If you remember back to a couple of years ago, when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2018, and the Yankees won a game at Fenway, he went by the Red Sox clubhouse and he started having he had a boombox playing New York, New York. OK, the Frank Sinatra song. Right. Am I correct on that? I'm not good with music. Yeah, the, the I remember Frank that. Sinatra. Right. OK, so they were playing that. That becomes a big thing. Alex Cora at the parade. I forget how many runs it was, but he says we scored 17 runs at Yankees Stadium. Suck on that. Right. So I <laughs> felt like we we're sort of trending in that direction. OK. Now, the one thing I'll say about Judge, he's not very hateable. Like, he doesn't do things like Alex Rodriguez slapping a glove, right? Like, he he doesn't really have hateable qualities. He's not a dislikable guy, right? He doesn't say stupid things about the Red Sox. He's actually, he seems like a really cool guy, right? So there's really nothing to dislike besides the fact that he's a Yankee, right? But the other component I would say is the guy that I think would be sort of the rival, it's Garrett Cole. Because Garrett Cole is the guy that sort of pisses everybody off. He complains about everything. Remember, he was complaining when they had the cut down on the sticky stuff.
1: Of course, he's always whining.
0: He just he was asking for help from just help us. Just help yeah. us out a little bit when it comes to that. And you kind of have remember he threw at Raffy. He threw at Raffy's legs because Rafi. Basically his own, the guy, I mean, Raphael Devers has outstanding numbers. I believe it's what eight home runs It's the most home runs. Cole has given up against anybody has been Raphael Devers. And I don't blame Cole for this. He threw at his legs. It's not like he threw it his head to try to get him down, to knock him off the ground. So I totally understand where Cole was coming from. So if we see more of that with Garrett Cole, I feel like Cole would be that guy. Now, the problem is since 2018, we had that great matchup in 2021, the wild card game. Guess who was pitching? Garrett Cole, Xander Bogarts takes him deep in the first inning. So if we get the Red Sox back to being relevant, like the Yankees are relevant right now, the Yankees are coming off an outstanding season a year ago, although, again, they came up short in the postseason. They haven't won a World Series since 2009. It's been quite a while, but I do feel like if both these teams are sort of in contention to make the playoffs, then we can get that rivalry heated back up. And I think in particular, the guy to do it will not be Judge. It'll actually be Garrett Cole or maybe even Stanton because Stanton's not the most likable guy either.
1: Yeah, I hear you in that. I think also I mean, you kind of alluded to it, but the Red Sox have won the last three playoff series against the Yankees. They got to yeah. beat us one of these times. Yeah, I will
0: say this, Jamie that wild card game in 2021 was maybe as electric as Fenway Park has been since four.
1: Yeah, that was the best game I've ever been to. Holy
0: shit. And by the way, you had Jerry Remy, who passed away very shortly after that, came out for the first pitch to throw to Eck. That was just an emotional moment. And actually, we talked to Sean McDonough about this when we had him on the pod like a month and a half ago, where after that, you kind of knew that the Red Sox are winning that game. That was just, that was an amazing atmosphere. Like I, a Yankees Red Sox playoff series would be awesome. Now we just got to get the Red Sox to that particular point, and and then we'll be ready to talk about a rivalry. And Boone's the manager, right? I mean, that's a guy that we don't like. I mean, he hit the home run in 03. That's a guy we don't like either. All right, Jamie, great stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. All right, so remember, you can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com, and also you can leave a voicemail at 617 396 7172. Oh, by the way, I did want to mention the Bruins real quick. They, of course, they had a seven-game winning streak entering Tuesday night, and they had just beaten Tampa and Carolina. So remember, I talk about the Celtics. They did not have an excuse. They're playing for the number one seed. They had not did not have an excuse to be a no-show. The Bruins, like, you could see them losing a game to a team like the Predators. The Predators are competing. They're trying to get into the postseason. So you could see them losing that game 2-1. And from a Bruins perspective, it was more just like execution. It was just an off night. They were 0 for 5 on the power play. They just, they weren't sharp. They just seemed off. I mean, Clifton had, on a 3-on-2, Clifton had an opportunity. He was just wide of the net. Same thing with Krejci, 3-on-2, he was wide of the net. It just seemed like they were just a little bit off. And even as I say that, like, they were off, they... 13 to 9 in high danger chances in favor of the Bees, 36 to 23 in overall shots. The Corsi rating, which is block shots, shots wide and shots on net was 75 to 42. So they still had a chance to win this game and even the expected goals in this game favored the Bruins, 3.16 to 2.33. It happens, the goal, the first goal of the game for Nashville, sort of unlucky to remember their second was an empty netter, than Pasta scored at the end there, but Omar couldn't really see what the initial shot was, and then glass just completely buries one. So just sort of even that goal that Omar gave up was kind of bad luck. But the Bruins are already locked up as they're going to win the President's Cup trophy, or they're the winners of the President's Cup trophy. They're going to be the number one overall seed in the postseason. Like from a Bruins perspective, they've already worked this out in terms of the Celtics. They're going to have to go into this battle with Philadelphia in the second round. And you look at it from a Bruins perspective, Toronto and the Lightning are going to have to beat each other up before you get one of those teams and you get the easier first round matchup as it pertains to the postseason. So I'm not going to get concerned about the Bruins losing one game to the Nashville Predators after playing maybe the two teams you're the most worried about in the Eastern Conference, Tampa and Carolina over the weekend, and you beat them both. So I'm not concerned about the bees whatsoever. Celtics, that's a different story. All right. Time now for our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at Fanduel, And it is opening day coming up on Thursday, people. Let's go. So I'm going to look at a same game parlay. So You look at Kyle Gibson, he starts the game for the Orioles. He's been all over the place, journeyman pitcher. This one I'll tell you, last year he had a 505 ERA in Philadelphia. That was 45th of 45 qualified starters, (laughs) so only one guy was worse than him. He had a 20.1% strikeout rate, so he does not miss bats. That was 34th out of those 45 starters. And so when I look at it, I'm going to look at some of the Red Sox in terms of the offense. I also like them to win... On that one and a half, the, the run line is one and a half. I like them to cover that. And then look at some of these lefties in the Red Sox lineup going against the righty, Kyle Gibson. I like Raffy. I like Verdugo to get hits in this game. And I also like Justin Turner to get a hit in this game. So that's sort of a same game parlay you can look at. Raffy, Verdugo, and Turner to get hits. And the Red Sox to cover that one and a half. And the reason I say that about Turner is he's actually been a better hitter against right-handed pitching in his career then left-handed pitching. He has a 295 career batting average against righties, and he has an 839 OPS. Rafi, I mean, come on. This is one of the best hitters in Major League Baseball, period. And he's the upper echelon hitter against right-handed pitching. 304 against righties since 2019. That's fourth in baseball. 90 home runs. That's fifth in baseball. 960 OPS. That's fifth. So he's going to get a hit against Kyle Gibson. And then Verdugo career, 294 against right-handed pitching. And an 812 OPS. So that's what I like. I like the Red Sox to cover that run line one and a half. And I like Verdugo to get a hit. I like Rafi to get a hit. And of course, I like Turner to get a hit as well. All right. Some of the things I'm looking at, too, in terms of this Red Sox season getting underway. A lot of stuff on FanDuel that you can put a little wager on. I like the Red Sox over the 78 and a half wins. I think the new schedule format certainly helps them. And if you're really feeling frisky, it's plus 301 to make the playoffs. That's really good value for a team that I think is going to be a lot better than most people expect. We gave you our MVP bets in the American League, plus 3000 on Rafi, plus 220 on Otani. And then I would sprinkle a little on our old friend Mookie Betts out in the National League. He's plus 950 for the MVP, and Soto's at plus 550. Mookie's second at plus 950. And a lot of people are on the Padres just because of the new additions, bringing in a guy like Xander Bogarts, et cetera. And they signed a bunch of guys, right? They got uh, Manny Machado signed up long term. You Darvish signed up long term. I think that Dodgers team is sort of getting a little bit underrated here. And Mookie could have a really big season. Well, he's going to have a big season no matter what. But I like Mookie plus 950. Throw a little bit on that. We gave you Casas for the AL Rookie of the Year at plus 900. How about the other Red Sox? Yoshida, this is good odds. Plus 600. Why not put a little bit on this? I mean, he's second in terms of the odds there, the second shortest odds, I should say. And this is a guy that we saw what he did in the WBC. He just hit like a 420-foot home run Tuesday in a spring training game. He's a 30-year-old guy. Like, this is not your ordinary rookie in Major League Baseball. He's obviously a very experienced player. I would sprinkle that plus 600 on Yoshida, the plus 900 on Casas, as we gave you a couple of weeks ago. All right, one Sox note I did want to hit on before the season gets underway on Thursday is sort of a carryover conversation from our discussion with Tyler Milliken on Sunday. And by the way, if you want to get a full breakdown and a preview of the Red Sox season, go back and listen to that podcast on Sunday. So one of the things we talked about was who would lead off the most games. And he mentioned Verdugo, and I think that's where they're going to land now, where Verdugo lands off the most game or leads off the most games. Now personally, I would like to be Casas just because I like the approach and the whole Schwarber comparison, I love that. But I think Verdugo is going to get a chance early here. And since the conversation we had on Sunday, Verdugo has been the leadoff guy for the Red Sox on Sunday, on Monday, and on Tuesday. So it's kind of telling you where Alex core is leaning in terms of against right-handed pitching. It looks like Verdugo is going to be the guy at least to begin the season. So sort of a metric man breakdown of Verdugo as a leadoff hitter. So if you want just the history, it's only been 167 plate appearances. 288, a 341 on-base percentage, 412 slug, 753 OPS. So the numbers are pretty good in terms of the average. And the on-base percentage, 341, pretty good as well. All right, so how does he profile, though? The good? Well, he's an outstanding bat-to-ball guy. Actually, not just good, he's elite. So if you look at his numbers in 2022, the strikeout rate was 13.4%. That was 16th in Major League Baseball. You look at the swinging strike rate, which that just means the percentage of pitches that are swinging strikes. It was at 6.3 last year. That was 14th in Major League Baseball, like really elite. If you look at just his whiff rate, that means the pitches you swing at, how often are you missing? 15.5 percent. That was 14th. So the bat to ball skills are elite. And he actually is pretty good in terms of laying off pitches outside of the strike zone, that number 24.9% of the time he swings at pitches out of the zone, that was 39, so that's well above average as well. Now, the issue with Verdugo is he doesn't walk, but like we talked about with Milliken, his numbers were better in the second half of the season last year, and his walk numbers were better as well. So, he did a much better job from August on taking his walks. And remember, he was banged up at the beginning of the season, but I don't think that dismisses the fact that he came into spring training out of shape. This year, he's in good shape. I mean, you can definitely tell it looks like a different guy. But if you go from August through the end of the season, when Verdugo got hot, 8.4% walk rate, that was 60th. So not great, but it's definitely above where he ordinarily is. Because if you look at those numbers pre-August, that was at 5.5%, which was 132nd. So at least he was more disciplined at the plate. So it may not seem like a lot, but a 2.9 percentage point increase, if you will, is a huge jump when it comes to walk rate. So if he can be just a little slightly above average or just average as it pertains to the walk rate, I'm fine with that because he is not got a strikeout. So I'm fine with him being an average guy in terms of walks. Ordinarily, you'd like your leadoff hitter to take more walks, but I'm fine with Verdugo doing that just because he is such a great bat-to-ball guy, as we illustrated. Okay, August through the end of the season, the other thing that he did well As we chatted again with Milliken about, he did cut down on the ground ball rate. So August through the end of the season, 40.7% ground ball rate, 85th. So around average, still not great, but pre-August, that number was at 48.2%, which was 29th in Major League Baseball. So we're talking about he dropped 7.5 percentage points in terms of the ground ball rate. And what happened because he was hitting less balls on the ground, 7.5% in terms of the decrease is massive. The results were better. So August through the end of the season, he hit 304, 366 on base percentage, 463 slug and an 828 OPS. That are those numbers. That is basically the profile leadoff hitter. Get on base, hit for a good average, right? That's what you want to see. Pre-August, the numbers were 270, 309, 375, 684. Like putrid, he was bad. The only thing that was okay was the batting average, but the on base percentage 309, that's not good, obviously. So if you look at those numbers, August through the end of the season, compared to pre-August, 34 percentage points in the average in terms of the increase, 57 percentage points in terms of the on-base percentage, 88 percentage points in terms of the slugging, and 144 percentage points in terms of the OPS. So the increase was noticeable. And I know he was banged up, as we alluded to, at the beginning of the year. That is part of it. But that does not affect your plate discipline, right? And sometimes, like at the beginning of the season, he's swinging at pitches that he can get to because Verdugo is a great bat to ball guy. But the problem is he's not getting great contact and he's just grounding out. That's the big thing that you want to see Verdugo avoid. So the two biggest things is if he can be average or slightly above average in terms of the walk rate and with the ground ball rate, he's going to have a breakout season from my perspective. If he can be around 40% with the ground ball rate and eight and a half percent with the walk rate, well, that means he's really seeing the ball well, which he always does but it also means he's making the right swing decisions. Like, you don't have to swing at everything and just put it in play. Make sure you're swinging at the right pitches. And I would be even be okay if the strikeout rate went up a little bit because he was only swinging at the pitches that made sense for him to swing at, right? That's the infuriating thing. Is like you see the bat-to-ball skills with Verdugo. And you see some of the outlying numbers that look good with Verdugo. And you say, he should be better than the results he's getting. And it's those two things, the ground ball rate and the walk rate, which comes with being more disciplined in terms of the pitches you swing. In, and I hope we see that this year. So I'm excited for the season to begin. I'm excited to see Verdugo get an opportunity at leadoff, even though, like I said, Casas is kind of like that unconventional leadoff hitter that I would like to see. I'm fine with the Red Sox landing on Verdugo. And the other portion of this is, I do think that sort of takes some pressure off Casas as he comes into his first real season as a major league player, because remember last year was just 95 plate appearances. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast. And we'll chat with you on Thursday where we'll have a lot to recap. We'll have opening day, baby, for the Red Sox. We'll have the Celtics. We'll have the Bruins. We'll have all that to get to.